Hello, everyone. Very welcome to this session where challenges intersect, promoting the inclusion of migrant women and vulnerable groups. Um, very happy to see so many of you here joining us. Uh, I'm very excited to be chairing a very interesting panel today featuring Lama Jagchuga, founder and CEO of Race Women's Awareness Network in Belgium, Beba Svigir, Chief Executive Officer of the Calgary Immigrant Women's Association in Canada, and Kava Spartak, Managing Director of Yar in Germany. We already heard him speak in the previous panel, and Rosella Mugorewera, Board Member of Refugee Congress and also the Executive Director of Bridge Refugee Services in the United States. Uh, so very welcome, uh, great to have you all here. I see some beautiful colorful backgrounds. I have a very plain white background here. Uh, I'll be turning uh, with questions to you shortly. Uh, and of course, we all well, welcome questions from the audience. My name is Jasmine Slokjes. I'm a senior policy analyst here at MPI Europe. Uh, before we get started, I have a few housekeeping notes that I would like to repeat. We've already heard them briefly in the previous panel, but just in case you've missed them, if you have a technical problem, you can send a direct message in Zoom chat or Hufa to Andras Alfoldi from MPI Europe, or you can email him directly at uh, aafoldi at migrationpolicy.org. Andras will be posting his email address also in the chat, so it's easier, you can copy paste it. Uh, we will have a Q&A at the end of this session. If you're following us on Hufa, please type your questions in the Q&A box for the session. And if you join us via Zoom, you can post your questions in the chat box. Again, a gentle reminder, we are recording this event, so please keep in mind that your questions and the chat may be recorded and also that all the questions and the chat messages will be viewable to all the other participants. Um, so let's get started and dive in. Uh, before uh, moving to our wonderful panelists, I would like to first set the scene and provide a little bit of context, uh, context about this topic uh, and introduce the topic that we'll be talking about today. Groups at risk of marginalization and social, social isolation often require highly tailored, intensive and holistic support. These groups include, for example, refugee women, LGBTQI migrants, unaccompanied children, the homeless or the elderly or other groups. And public services often struggle to provide these services tailored to these groups. Social innovation for inclusion holds a lot of promise in providing tailored flexible support to answer these complex and intersecting needs. Yet the pandemic has both intensified the challenges and complicated the potential solutions. Migrant women, for example, have experienced particularly high levels of unemployment, financial strain, loss of legal status, increased health risks, and the burden of unpaid care for their families. On top of this, they often do not have access to critical social infrastructure, such as affordable childcare. Moreover, lockdowns and additional family commitments have reduced their opportunities for pursuing employment, skill building, and participating in social activities. The pandemic has both highlighted the key role migrant women and refugee women play in destination societies, for example, in healthcare, in social care, uh, but at the same time, it has also disrupted tailor-made services for the most vulnerable groups, which often strongly rely on in-person interactions. 
So drawing from their experience, we have four wonderful panelists with us today. Uh, we'll, they all will discuss key factors to promote the inclusion, participation, and the agency of vulnerable groups, particularly against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic. The session will also explore possible approaches to make these often highly tailored and very resource intensive solutions more sustainable and scalable. So again, thank you so much all for being here. Uh, I would first like to turn uh, to Lama Jagjuga, the founder and CEO of Race Women's Awareness Network in Belgium. Uh, where are you joining us from today, Lama? Hello everyone, so nice to see you all and thank you for your invitation. Well, I'm based in Brussels in Belgium. <laughs> Excellent, so, great. Uh, yeah, thank you. Very happy to have you here. Uh, so I first would like to start with a question for you. Uh, so your organization aims to improve the educational and professional opportunities of refugee and migrant women. Uh, and I would be really interested if you could very briefly uh, could mention how your operations and services have evolved in the past one and a half years during the pandemic. Uh, and I'm also very curious about what your organization learned in this field, and then especially about uh, how you have been able to maintain a sense of community and trust among the women you work with and assist uh, while the pandemic hit. Uh, so the floor is yours, Lama. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, at the beginning, um, my initiative started in 2018, and then, like recently, we registered as non-profit organization in Brussels. So, basically, the aim of the organization uh, before COVID-19, we was not like providing a specific service. We aim to work um, with other existing initiatives and um, projects, and with Belgian universities and different kind of organization who supporting migrant and refugee women to have better access to labor market, um, to um, invite them and invite representatives from their organizations and uh, the university to meet the women who have like migrant or refugee background to sit in one table and discuss the main challenge and difficulty they face it and uh, try to uh, propose a new recommendation, work on it and share it with the decision maker. So our, my like initiative or uh, the organization, one organization, so mainly uh, was trying to fill this kind of gap or build a bridge between the both sides. But when COVID happened, uh, the, the situation become more and more difficult because um, we uh, observed like before COVID that migrant and refugee women normally, they don't have enough digital skills. How we discovered that through when they try to join us uh, or like register for our workshops. So for them, it was really hard to contact us like by email or register to any like uh, online form or to discover where is the place and their, um, to discover even more information regard to the session or the type of workshop that we provide. So through that, in fact, um, uh, after recognizing that and when COVID happened, we recognized that we need to work like immediately somehow to empower migrant and refugee women in ICT. Uh, 
So it was very hard because how we can do that and everyone is staying home and uh, just we can't like host any workshops. So in fact, we had a great um, volunteering group who was working very actively uh, regard to that issue. And we try to reach uh, um, the women who are interested to take a kind of like a digital training with us. Uh, individually at the beginning we call them and then we try to organize a, a kind of like online appointment by whatsapp because normally they are very familiar with it and then try to uh, somehow uh, to uh, learn them how they can join us through the zoom and then go step by step to allow them or like empower them in the way or assist them to attend uh, the digital uh, literacy course uh, the difference was uh, that I believe that we did it through the one organization that we was able to uh, provide the digital literacy course in Arabic language. And this is for them, it was a focal point because not uh, like not all the women was uh, able to communicate in the yet in the host uh, um, country language especially Belgium, it's really three language. So it was very, very hard at the beginning. So uh, I believe through that there's some, like we already like uh, trained 50 women so far and we are aiming to continue with it. Um, more and more women after like, um, heard about this initiative and this kind of like digital courses which is provided by their mother tongue so I was uh, more interested to uh, just like register and we already like have now a waiting list with other women who are uh, looking forward to continue in this kind of skills so somehow we try to empower the women by give them a new tool which is uh like support them in the way that they can continue their integration in host country. Um, the question also could be interesting to uh, that you mentioned that where they are now, especially after five years and uh, how the integration system was going by uh, during COVID. In fact, like I, I, I should be honest, the integration situation is really in difficult time now. We are trying really to, um, as a nonprofit organization and many other actors, really to work very hardly to somehow fi find alternative solution, which is based on their uh, past experience and trying to improve it somehow to um, not to lose the connection with them. So uh, this is mainly I would like to mention it regarding your question. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that information. I think it also really beautifully connects to a session we'll have tomorrow about uh, digitization, the use of digital tools. Uh, so I think your information would be very uh, uh, beneficial in that session as well. Uh, and I'm curious here because of course uh, you're giving this course uh, online. So you're teaching digital literacy while already online and you talked about using the platform of whatsapp so this was you were mentioning this is a platform that is already more used by the groups that you're working with and therefore it was easier to maintain the sense of trust or easier to communicate using whatsapp while teaching yet another digital platform um it was mainly in fact that we based on whatsapp because normally even in the academia that the studies last was like mentioned that 
normally migrant and refugee, uh, I would say women or men, uh, are more uh, familiar with using smartphone. So to reach them, so we need to communicate uh, somehow through the, the technology, through smartphone, I would say. But maybe other challenge could be here to mention the fact that unfortunately not all of them, they have a computer even at their home. So this is, was also another challenge to, to face later, but then they discovered that they cannot take any appointment with anything, for example, bank or like healthcare. So they need to buy a computer. This was another challenge. And then they don't know how to use it or to, to link it to, with the internet, with a printer to have a connection with us. So I would say, in fact, WhatsApp was like, I, we choose it because we, through it, we had like this experience that we can have a direct contact with them. And normally how we reach them through also the Facebook groups that they use it normally because they, as a kind of community, they communicate with their own, own mother tongue. And we are really very diverse team too. So um, we, we speak many languages already. So we are able to reach different women and a lot of women from different backgrounds and uh, we support all the women <laughs> in general yeah yeah no, that's great that you're mentioning that also of course the availability in multiple languages and how important that is to learn yet another skill again in a language uh, that you're maybe not fully proficient in yet that, that, that of course creates an additional obstacle uh I was, of course, asking, yeah, in direct services or in-person contact were very difficult during the pandemic or not allowed. Uh, how did that impact the sense of trust or connecting to these women? Or what? Or is it because you speak these languages or because you have people from different communities? Was it easier to make these connections? I'm very curious about this. Yes, uh, absolutely. In fact, we are from that community. So uh, we have a, like, um, like we already are 14 volunteering now. So supporting uh, Rezun Awareness Network organization. So uh, we, we are a very diverse team. So each one of us as a volunteering, we have link with our community. So through that, through communicating with them, yes, we try to involve more and more women to benefit from the kind of, uh, now I call it service because before COVID, as one organization, we never like provide special like training through one organization. But after COVID, we recognize that we need to do something for that, for the women to support them. So, but building trust absolutely will take time. Cannot be like uh, in just a short time. Through the successful, like I would say, activity record that we have it before of organizing many workshops, uh, we deal with very big names or trusted names uh, as a, like a, a Belgian university or organizations as well, who are very, very known here. Um, so we, we, we try somehow to be um, very, um, clear regard to the information, very uh, uh, take care about all the details that we, the woman might need to know ab about it. Also at the beginning, by like presenting our um, organization, why we establish our transparency as well, that who's supporting us and why we do that and why we're supporting you, why we'd like to empower you. So this kind of like clarifying this kind of information was absolutely, um, uh, like somehow build uh, like a 
I would say, uh, like strong uh, base regard to the trust between each other. So thank you so much for clarifying. And uh, yeah, also very interesting how your organization really pivoted in the type of work that you do, really responding to the needs that you were seeing and identifying during the pandemic and starting to provide services, like you said, uh, which maybe wasn't done before. Uh, we'll definitely pick up the discussion and we'll discuss a lot more with you. Uh, but first, I'd like to move on to one of our other panelists, uh, Bebas Vigir, uh, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Calgary Immigrant Women's Association an organization that provides a wide range of services for migrant women, girls, and their families in Canada. Uh, and we know that your organization has for a long time used a more holistic approach, for example, by combining language training, employment advice, uh, and psycho psychosocial support. The pandemic has challenged especially in-person service delivery, like we were just discussing before. Uh, what of this holistic support were you able to translate successfully to a different mode of uh, service delivery because in-person wasn't possible. So outdoor, virtual, or hybrid delivery modes. And also maybe what didn't work as planned? What were the challenges that your organization faced? The floor is yours, Beda. Thank you very much, Jasmine. Happy to be here. And greetings from Calgary, where it is early morning. So supporting the settlement of SIVA clients during the past 18 months has been a challenging time it also provided us with multiple opportunities to face sustainable and scalable solutions for service delivery. As an immigrant serving agency with a gender-specific mandate, we are acutely aware that refugees and migrant women face many challenges in the workforce and home life, from cultural differences and role reversal to employment, caregiving, and parenting in Canada. COVID-19 further exacerbated those social and economic inequities as women were hit harder by disproportionate share of job loss, additional family responsibilities due to limited childcare options and children attending school online. As we adjusted to our new reality, we remained focused on what we call the art of the possible, creating alternative and equitable options for our clients we pivoted from in-person to contactless services delivery and transitioned to outside virtual and hybrid services for clients. This ensured that our clients had access to an uninterrupted, customized, intensive and holistic wraparound services in the areas of psychosocial support, employment training, language learning and community engagement. In this process, we basically went through a three-stage transition that enabled us to triage our clients accordingly, in line with their vulnerabilities, obviously. We were able to serve all women who reached out to us during pandemic. And it's interesting to point out that in the fiscal year 2021, of the total number of clients that we serve, which is over 15,000, 64% of them were new clients. So, clients were able to find us as well as us reaching out to clients. At the onset of COVID in March 2020, it was all about transitioning, communicating and acquiring IT resources to distribute to clients. Lack of access to proper equipment or internet services for clients in their homes was addressed by pooling resources and creating a lending library of laptops and developing partnerships to 
access free internet services and devices for clients. We address limitations to digital literacy for some of our clients by dropping off assignments to clients' homes, delivering lessons and counseling services over the phone while training clients to use devices to access online services. Due to the lack of access to personal transportation for clients, we coordinated the delivery of groceries and household items for all of them. And all communication with clients, especially refugee population, was offered if needed in their first language. As the pandemic raged on, we realized how many psychosocial issues surfaced up as a byproduct of disruptions and isolation. The biggest challenge for us became gender-based violence as a direct result of isolation and increased stress factors associated with overcrowded homes, multi-generational family settings, economic and parenting challenges. The concept of gender-based violence as a shadow pandemic is very evident through our experience. Since March 2020, we have seen a 50% increase in clients reporting gender-based violence. Removing them from abusive situations became even more difficult due to the lack of shelter space during pandemic and limitations of health services. We generated a coordinated plan for emergency transitional housing for victims through partnerships with other stakeholders. Those cross-sectoral collaborations became essential, in particular with Calgary Police Service and women's emergency shelters in the city and offering culturally sensitive case management supports for immigrant women, while simultaneously delivering cultural competency training for police staff to be able to better respond to crisis calls for multicultural families. During this stage, several months into pandemic, a significant increase in mental health issues surfaced up as a result of additional compounded challenges for everyone. Third stage of our experience was piloting and assessing the impact of our adapted intervention models. And I would like to highlight three of those models. The first one was virtual childcare supports to relieve women accessing our online classrooms to be able to attend training and participate in their children's developmental, cognitive and language outcomes from home during COVID. This model included phone or video conferencing sessions, occasional in-person home visits, delivering packages with arts and crafts supplies ahead of engaging artists for online arts and crafts sessions with parents and children, regularly dropping off snacks, books, and toys for children, nurturing social connections with their childcare workers and creating online communities among children aged two to six. In total, 130 children from 21 countries participated in those sessions. Another example of our uh, adaptive involvement is innovative employment supports, supports. During the pandemic, our employment bridging programs adopted the virtual instructor-led training, VILT model, to ensure that clients were prepared for successful and productive engagement in the labor market during pandemic. We wanted to use the opportunity to offer meaningful training to women while they were at home and available for that. Our business partners provided virtual practicums for hundreds of our clients in a wide spectrum of professions. 100% of women enrolled in training 
through graduation programs. And that number was 600 plus graduated from the programs and 79% of them accessed employment during COVID. The third successful example is our adapted home visitation model for highly vulnerable families with multiple risks. They received either in-person supports in the privacy of their backyards and porches or virtual customized family visitations, enabling them to strengthen family relationships and address risk factors impacting their children at home. So what we have learned is the importance of digital literacy is absolutely essential for successful settlement of newcomers. Once we establish sufficient capacity, virtual services allowed us to expand our reach to clients. This approach increased overall cost effectiveness, scope and accessibility of our programs. At the same time though, we realized and learned and experienced how virtual services are connected with huge challenges in terms of maintaining confidentiality and privacy. Use of outdoor and green spaces while observing safety protocols helped well-being and mental health of clients without any major cost-effective clinical interventions. And naturally, supports for children cannot be delayed during isolation and parents are absolutely desperate for support during isolation. So well thought out virtual connections are possible and very beneficial for them. So with that in mind, we have been advocating policy changes in relation to employers moving from the dependence on casual and part-time labor to provision of full-time opportunities with benefits for frontline workers in precarious workplaces in Canada meaningful government investments in sustainable solutions for gender-based violence. And I can tell you that a result of this involvement was additional $2 million that we received to address gender-based violence in immigrant families, affordable childcare options for families, investments in digital literacy learning. Obviously, we all knew how important digital literacy learning is, but the positive outcome of COVID for our clients has been that their IT competencies moved from one to 10 within one year. And that speaks about the importance of that issue as part of the uh, basic settlement integration requirements for newcomers in Canada. And we have also been providing support for pathways to permanent residency in Canada for temporary foreign workers who are currently working in Canada in an essential occupation like healthcare workers, agricultural workers, and so on. So I'll stop there, considering the time limitation, and I will be happy to answer any questions. Excellent. Thank you so much for this very rich description. And I think it touches upon so many of the challenges many organizations face, but also all these different opportunities. And I think that I've been hearing from different actors, more cross-sectoral uh, collaboration, for example, and opportunities for more cost effectiveness and a bigger reach. So uh, yeah, so that's that's really interesting to hear. And I would love to touch on many of these topics later in the discussion. I saw we received a question from the audience and actually I think it would be interesting to uh, post that already now. This question was posed by Homa Hassan. And the question is, if you could maybe elaborate what the psychosocial support activities entail from your organization. So all supports in relation to the uh, uh, isolation and uh, uh, challenges in relation to that in terms of 
loss in terms of in, uh, family issues, certainly uh, uh, family interruptions, uh, relationships in relation to social access to resources, um, uh, supports in relation to mental health issues, supports in relation to uh, our seniors requiring access to resources, but at the same time requiring first language services that can ease their level of comfort and their trust with us and their ability to believe that we can engage them, providing them the opportunity to feel that they are meaningfully involved, providing their spouses. We are the organization that serves women as a primary client. However, spouses are desperate for services and very frequently they ask us to engage in services. And as the biggest settlement agencies, agency in Canada with the gender specific focus, our capacity is really rich in terms of um, ensuring uh, clients are fully and holistically supported. One of the most important thing and of the value that we live by and deliver our services is equity as opposed to equality, which means fairness as opposed to sameness. Uh, and that fairness and customized approach to each individual is very important. Um, thousands of clients that we serve rely on us for um, a very um, uh, hopefully speedy integration and um, access to resources. And in Canada, even though the government invests huge amounts of money in uh, settlement integration supports, um, it is very important that we um, honor the expectation imposed on us as settlement agencies to expedite that uh, uh, integration so that that on the one hand, clients can be well supported to help themselves uh, become independent, participating and uh, 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 belonging members of the, of the community. I hope I answered your question. Excellent, thank you so much. And I think also this issue of the customized approach, and I think I touched upon that kind of describe introducing the topic, how can we scale this up? Because it's very important to be individualized, be very uh, sensitive to what every individual needs, but at the same time, that makes it hard to make it very scalable uh, and cost-effective. They're very resource intensive. So uh, I would love to further discuss this later on. Uh, but first, I would like to move to uh, the discussion to Kava Spartak uh, and his organization YAR uh, in uh, Berlin that supports Afghan refugees. And we already heard you speak in the previous session. Um, and what I would really like to ask you is that in your experience, what are the success factors for any intervention that aim to protect groups at high risk of exclusion and marginalization? Uh, based on your experiences in your organization. The floor is yours. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Um, I'm very pleased to be here representing our organization, even though, even though I, I thought one of my female colleagues would have represented this topic better. However, uh, from our point of view and, uh, um, and considering the last, uh, the last five years, especially in the last six years, um, ever since uh, a huge influx of, of um, refugees uh, entered the European continent, especially Germany, uh, we, have to, we have to emphasize that Afghan refugees, Afghan asylum seekers per se, were a very vulnerable group since they were regarded as second-class refugees. I mean, not, not, not officially, but they were treated as such. So um, in this sense, uh, the, 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 the impact that this, this, the, the European policy had on, uh, on, Europe, on, on Afghan refugees was, uh, was that everyone 
uh, from 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 Afghanistan uh, or every refugee newcomer from Afghanistan was a vulnerable was belonging to a sort of a vulnerable group. So when we started working in 2016 in Berlin, um, the one of the one of the interventions that that successfully uh, actually we uh, experienced was uh, especially what what Beba was 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 telling us that we have to treat people with fairness i mean uh, and 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 this is something that we we were we were honestly telling the people we were we were we were telling them from the very beginning look we're trying to help you as much as we can and we're trying to we're trying to to support you so that you can help yourselves but we have to consider don't take this personally what what is happening in germany what is happening in europe is a, is, a, is a political decision. This is not necessarily against you personally, but this is against Afghan asylum seekers in general. This is a policy that is that is being combined with the international troops and international stakeholders together with the Afghan government, so that you are being being used as a as a kind of a tool for 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 policymakers. So this was very important for us in, in our communication with the people, because at the end of the day, if we were not telling them. Um, that, uh, telling them this uh, in, a, in a very sincere way, at the end of the day, it was always the, 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 the counseling officers, the NGOs and the lawyers who were not doing their job. Whereas we were all doing our jobs like as, uh, as, as best as we could. However, the policymakers, the, the interior ministry and also the, the judges, they decided differently because as you can imagine um, uh, how the Afghanistan issue and the Afghan asylum seekers issue was treated in the last couple of years. So in this regard, our uh, uh, the most vulnerable groups um, have been the, the, the whole package, like the whole uh, the, the whole Afghan asylum seeker community. But of course, we had minors here, like minors who were who were uh, who, who who didn't have uh, any family support, who were completely on their own. We had, of course, single women. We have mothers without the company of their husbands, uh, together with their children. Very vulnerable group. Um, women, as such, uh, even married women, uh, were 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 uh, were victims of, of domestic violence, as 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 uh, as Baba mentioned. Also, and I, I mean, this has also increased during during the pandemic. I have to I have to uh, underline here. And also, what happened because of or or, or due to this whole uh, uh, categorization of of of, of Afghans being. Uh, uh, or coming from a from a safe uh, from a safe country, and uh, while rejecting their asylum uh, uh, queries, uh, this led many many people to 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 a to a sudden mental illness that that, that, that they have never experienced before. So we had like I don't know uh, 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 drug addicts and 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 parks in Berlin. We had um, prostitution and so on and so forth. So I I can tell you that Berlin has 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 intervened um, um, like quite successful in this regard. I mean, of, of course, the, the question remains, how can we measure success in this regard? But Berlin has, has, has intervened at least. Either, either the, the, uh, the respective boroughs where, where, where this was happening or on, on a state level, at least we, we have always been discussing these kind of topics. But I, I have the feeling that it is important for us, uh, even, even, even considering the, the pandemic, that um, we have to learn to prevent things and not to react afterwards. So this is, um, this is a, a very important issue. And with regards to the pandemic, and this will be my last point, 
we we have been we have been trying to say this not only our organization but that, but many other civil society organizations that the refugee camps in berlin they need internet access all the time like internet access not only in one area but in every room so once the pandemic hit and people needed counseling uh, uh, with, with with our organization or with with certain other institutions they didn't have internet access. And this was a huge problem for the people. And not only internet access in order to receive counseling, but internet access in order to receive information about the pandemic, where, where, where everybody was actually, was uh, was, was like, like didn't have a clue of what was going on in the first place. So, and uh, um, and the, the, the newcomers, they, they didn't have information in their own language. They didn't have information. They didn't even have access to information or access to the internet. So everything that happened afterwards was, I, I think, was a reaction that uh, could have been prevented. Cheers. Thank you. And I think this is a really wonderful point you're making, like this always very reactive approach to crises or emergencies and which often exacerbate things that have been long existing or inequalities or inequities that have been there for a long time and are only illuminated or exacerbated because of things like the pandemic. Uh, so I think this is really important that we listen to these many voices from civil society and these things start yeah, being taken on more structurally. Um, Think, speaking of another crisis that there was a lot of reaction to, uh, or crisis, uh, the, the, the influx of migrants in 2015, Berlin is often mentioned as an example, or uh, where a lot of activity happened, uh, so a lot of progress has been made, and I'm curious to hear uh, from your opinion, what is the biggest progress that has been made since 2015 in Berlin, and also what is still missing, what are still the most crucial gaps uh, for yours? I mean, I can, I can, I can first of all uh, um, let talk from the from the perspective of, of of Afghan newcomers. Although I'm I'm also involved in many other topics, and I can also represent certain other migrant groups, uh, hopefully uh, with with allowance of, of the others watching. Uh, but from from the Afghan uh, Afghan perspective, I have to I have to say that Berlin was one of the first um, federal states in Germany that again reacted towards this whole marginalization of afghan refugees uh, by by providing them with or or giving them at least um, or opening language courses on a, on a state level uh, before afghan refugees uh, and 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 many other many other people were excluded from from official language courses integration courses that were funded and um as a um, as a consequence of course they were also excluded from many other integration programs, not only language courses. So what Berlin did at, at, at that time and reacted very, very quickly um, was uh, to open uh, uh, to open access to language courses for, for everybody, not only for Africans, but for everybody. This is, I think, a huge step. Um, the, the other one was that uh, Berlin saw the chance. I mean, I've, of course, I have to talk about our organization now. Uh, we we started working professionally uh, in 2016, although we were we were already a, a registered NGO already in 2012. But um, the 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 boroughs of Berlin and also the state of Berlin, they actually they welcomed us with open arms because they said, look, we needed an, a strong Afghan uh, uh, or an NGO with Afghan roots because we're we're facing these challenges now together. And what 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 is a better situation than than you? Uh, 
you entering the stage. So in this regard, they were they were very very uh, um, uh, uh, motivating and, and empowering in this regard. They helped us from the from the very beginning, and um, and also I think what Berlin has managed uh, was that. Uh, and again, I'm emphasizing this from an Afghan point of view. They um, they 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 showed us as a, and and uh, and 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 some of the the policies. As a break, as as a best practice uh, to 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 other German federal states, so they said, look, the challenge, uh, uh, particularly with Afghan refugees, which was the biggest, uh, was was the second biggest group after the Syrian refugees, um, we we have this in, uh, in, in in every federal state. However, here in Berlin, we're reacting towards it, and in such a manner with such organizations. With, together with the civil society. And I think this was also very, very important. What is missing, and uh, now coming to the, to the last point in my point of view, is, um, is that we, um, we, we, uh, we, uh, we, need, we need to talk more, even more. I mean, it's not enough to say, look, we have an Afghan NGO here and they're doing everything for us. But uh, the, we need we need more resources. I mean, this is this is no secret. But um, more than that, we need we need uh, we need to be included more uh, in, in in every aspect. Well, why, 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 I will give you an example. For instance, um, as you as you, as you have seen the pictures from 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 recent uh, takeover of the Taliban in Afghanistan and the and the pullout of the international troops. Of course, every every NATO state is is like alarming right now and is expecting a lot of uh, um, evacuated Afghan refugees. And also, especially in Europe, we are even awaiting even more people to come. So uh, with regards to that, um, our organization, which is actually the most uh, significant Afghan civil society organization in Berlin, we expected the Berlin Senate to talk to us uh, before reacting, before, I don't know, publishing a statement, before visiting the evacuated people, so that we could we, we could have done this jointly. I mean, this is no secret, we have already told them, but these are some of the things, some of the little details that I think when everything is perfect, we still find some 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 uh, some some room for improvement. And um, yes, I think um, um, dialogue and and uh, um, um, and inclusion is, is is really important in this regard. And um, our organization, last point, is also um, is also has also been been um, been uh, been putting a lot of a lot of emphasis on participation not only on paper but in, in praxis so um, a, a majority of our of our of our workers uh, and our volunteers right now are newcomers and they're not only um, they're not only shaping our organization but also our programs so uh, when we when we represent the afghan community we represent not only the afghan migrants and diaspora but also the afghan newcomers so this is something that i would also uh, encourage other 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 stakeholders in berlin to to um, yeah to include the newcomers and not only uh, not only talk about it or, or or have it in programs and invite them you know what I mean so uh, when they're visible it's okay but they need to, to to be heard as well this is very crucial thank you thank you so much again very rich uh, contribution and I think again here some topics that I hear across different of our uh, panelists is these partnerships with the government and at times they increase they I think during the pandemic but apparently also previously but still they're not optimal and how 
we can make that structural and not only at one point during the process we talked about in the plenary session not someone who talk, comes in gives a story and then the decisions are made without uh, these communities but that they're that everyone different stakeholders different representatives are all part of the entire conversation and early on uh, like you're saying so I think that's a very important point uh, that you're making um, we're moving to our next panelist uh, Drosella Murgo Rivera uh, from the organization Bridge Refugee Services, and they provide a wide range of services to refugees in Tennessee, the United States, including assistance with housing, employment, and education. And you also provide activities for children and women and emphasize community connections. And I'm very curious, how do you involve the local community in the work that you do? And what have been the main challenges of doing this in the past few years, especially during the pandemic? Uh, and how have you dealt with these challenges or try to overcome these challenges? The floor is Thank yours. You. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Hello, everyone. And uh, first of all, I'm grateful uh, for Bridge Refugee Services uh, because they welcomed me 12 years ago. I was a client of Bridge 12 years ago, and I'm grateful that uh, now I can lead this organization that makes impact and Bridge has been in service almost for 40 years, since 1982. As you know, the refugee resettlement is a public and private partnership. So we cannot do it by ourselves. We rely on uh, community uh, partners, uh, like volunteers, donors. So we do also fundraising. But uh, our operations are based in a holistic uh, case management. Any family member from children to elders, women, so we try uh, to work on um, service plan and work on mid uh, long-term goals and using the SMART um, model. So we help them to define their goals. And also we have uh, a, a program which is preferred community intensive case management that started in 2019. And uh, uh, these are the people who have uh, many challenges uh, who really need intensive case management. For now, the population we serve are 90% uh, of uh, the caseload are made from people from Democratic Republic of Congo, 29% are single parents, and 29% of our clients have complicated medical and mental <coughs> health needs, and 7% um, are the victims of the domestic violence and HIV AIDS. Regarding our partnership with uh, community partners, uh, as I say, we recruit community assistance team. Our goal is to find a, a family member attached to a community assistance team at least for six months so they can help them to navigate the system. Uh, when we did, uh, the case managers did uh, um, intake with clients, most of them reported difficulties to navigate the complicated healthcare system and, uh, and understand the insurance. And um, the case manager developed tools to show that if they have what kind of different medical insurance they have and how they could call themselves to have a free ride because transportation was made as a big issue in challenge so they, they missed their appointment. During COVID, uh, we did a survey and uh, 36 uh, clients participated in the survey to show how they were feeling and how they were coping with COVID. 
and the 19% reported feeling depressed and 23% reported uh, feeling isolated. But when we did like digital literacy, what we learned from that, uh, we learned about an opportunity to help our clients to learn how to ride with the public transportation like Uber and Lyft because they were afraid and the case managers were using WhatsApp as my predecessor say uh, to book Uber, but it gave us opportunity to show that we should uh, help them to know how uh, to ride Uber and Lyft. And another difficulties we have experienced was um, of course the volunteer uh, uh, engagement was low because of the safety, we, we care about our safety, the safety of the staff, the client, the volunteers, but we did find some opportunities to use some volunteers who were dropping groceries uh, on the client's doors, for example, if they had to quarantine during COVID. And uh, uh, we also uh, worked with uh, the University of Tennessee English Learning Institute uh, to provide uh, virtual learning and it was amazing because uh, since I have been a director almost six years, we have never had uh, a surge of donations like COVID time. And uh, I'm thankful that community partners saw that the refugee community should not be left behind. We had funding for buying laptops for the clients, connection to internet. And uh, from Eastern Tennessee Foundation, we did get a grant recently to conduct a women empowerment seminar. And I'm hopeful that it will be exciting where we will do a SWOT analysis with women to see what are the challenges, what are the potential threats and things, and they can provide solutions themselves. The biggest challenge we faced was housing maintenance. And that can cost us a lot um, in terms of losing some landlords because you know, social distancing and social <laughs> work are not living on the same floor. Uh, case managers didn't do uh, the home visit for safety reasons. And then we did find some um, damages and not maintaining the uh, apartment as they should do. And one of the uh, innovative things we are doing is asking and collaborating with the landlords so they can provide videos educational videos from landlord points. So to show the place, how do you do this? And then we will translate them in different languages. Uh, fortunately, we have um, a community liaison on the staff uh, who speaks eight languages and many communications uh, passed through her uh, between her and case management. Um, I can also say that um, we uh, work with um, uh, the Center of English and Inter Interpretation Services. Normally they do transportation from home to English classes, but uh, uh, during COVID there were a drop off uh, for some, but now uh, they are having hybrid. We are recruiting volunteers and we are engaging the multicultural group even to help in learning uh, and having driver's license so they can do transportation uh, going to work. Most of the time we speak about clients and we do not focus on staff, but uh, we uh, also think about uh, how the staff will, um, the self-care of staff. And uh, we were glad that the federal government gave us supplemental funding during COVID. So, and uh, some of the funding were uh, uh, directed to socio psychosocial support to staff so they can have some self-care um, engagements for themselves. 
And um, also, um, we did notice that there were many myths in our community about COVID testing and uh, getting help when they were sick. And we had a, a meeting with the health department and cultural groups. And we uh, asked the leaders uh, to do the videos, educational videos, for example, when they did get uh, testing for COVID so they can share the videos. But also one of the best practice uh, we recognize is uh, using drama. So African like drama role play. And uh, we did work on that with the Burundian and the Congolese. So <clears throat> they can uh, see what they like. And then we use that tool to educate our family and uh, our families um, for uh, prevention of COVID, but also for coping. Because some would think it was not real. It was not attaching, for example, African-American, it was for white people. But through those drama and educational material, we dismissed that and we saw increase in testing. And then we did see increase in taking vaccines. Uh, we train our staff also on trauma-informed care and motivational interviews, because uh, as you know, refugees uh, lose trust in many people. So we have to see what kind of non-traditional things we can use uh, to help our staff to make sure that they communicate and they, they, they can collaborate efficiently with uh, our clients. In terms of employment, really, we don't have any problem with employment. We have plenty of jobs. You know, refugees uh, are competitive on the job market. And uh, many employers are coming to ask for us uh, to, to give them employers. So the vulnerable population normally are parents, uh, single parents who are struggling uh, to schedule the employment, the daycare without transportation. This is the most vulnerable category. And we are doing a study with the three cubed to see how uh, the daycare issue can be um, resolved. And there is another uh, initiative in the community uh, through enterprise uh, uh, company where they are helping to transport people to go to work and the community action committee. And we are very grateful that those initiatives exist. So another challenge is um, we do provide interpretation services, but we advocate that it should be across the board. And uh, if I had power, I would uh, ask people to learn all the Englishes. In my community, we have more hundred languages spoken in my community. So, but when they learn uh, international languages, it's optional for many people. So it's, it's time for us to see how really we, are, we can learn the language to use it and to serve, uh, since we are talking about diversity and inclusion, uh, we are advocating that uh, interpretation uh, services can be across the board. And uh, uh, of course, the three pillars of refugee integration uh, for everyone is learning English, employment, and community engagement. This is why we recruit as much as community assistance team and volunteers. So probably I can stay there and then uh, I will answer other questions. Thank you. Great, thank you so much. And again, also very rich to hear how many of your organizations and often with 
limited resources or limited funding really pivoted so quickly responding to all the very diverse needs uh, from the communities you're serving and really responding and playing such a crucial role during such a difficult time like the pandemic and also of course not only during a pandemic it, this is the work uh, you're always doing um, but then especially during a pandemic uh, it's really uh, inspiring to hear and also to see very particularly how this played out in from Canada to Tennessee to Belgium to Berlin, uh, how these different approaches have a lot in common and sometimes also have specific approaches. Uh, and then maybe continuing on that because uh, many of your organizations all target slightly different groups, maybe some are focused on women, others specifically on Afghan communities, other, other groups. Um, and what, yeah, what we're trying to discuss in the beginning, when you discuss of these, the intersection of different uh, uh, of more vulnerable or highly difficult to reach groups, it often requires a very tailored approach. You have to take a very individual approach. What are the needs of this specific person? Every person is different. Sometimes we use the word community, but there's a lot of diversity within a community as well. Uh, how, when we use these very tailored and resource intensive sometimes ways of approaching, how can we scale this up? How can we make this sustainable? Uh, and I'm very curious from you, and maybe you have some lessons you learned during the pandemic, and it could be one of the things I've been hearing, uh, this digital format of providing services, but feel free for any of the four panelists to, to jump in and share what you've learned, how to scale up uh, approaching these very complex needs. Okay, thank you. So just um, just a very brief comment. Capacity is very important. We absolutely cannot underestimate uh, the importance of combining two things. Investments that come our way as agencies based on our expertise, our ability to achieve outcomes and impact on the community, but also building capacity through engaging, and all the panelists spoke about that, through engaging the community to help us do that and encourage them to be part, to be the agents of supporting the integration of newcomers, to take pride in what they have done to support newcomers. In Canada, we have the concept that is called local immigration partnerships, which is a conglomerate of all the stakeholders in the community, not-for-profit, social services, government bodies, and uh, all kinds of public sector educational institutions who meet regularly, have their representation on those councils and provide what they can do to support newcomers, to make connections with the agencies that lead the settlement uh, support and uh, provide uh, uh, support for them, for those other stakeholders to smoothly become part of the, of the solutions for the newcomers. Um, that equity point I cannot stress um, enough um, each individual is different. Each vulnerable in individual is hugely different than any other vulnerable individual. And we have to be able as developed societies who have committed to accept, to receiving refugees, to support them for success and to make sure that they contribute to this community and transform them in a positive way. Um, I'll give you a few examples of, uh, uh, I mentioned uh, services, but how quickly we um, were able to grab the new opportunities and realize how we can reach, uh, um, um, uh, reach out to with the highest scope of services. For years, we have been advocating for um, uh, mentoring and, the, uh, and sharing best practice um, um, 
models that we have developed in our programs with the rest of the country and um, hugely trying to influence in, uh, immigration refugees and citizenship Canada in creating more opportunities for that. COVID has opened up the doors and actually it tested that, that option for all of us. We are already offering hybrid programs and that will stay with us. We will always have the option of hybrid programs for women who might have multiple children at home and find it difficult to come and access uh, services in Canada in person during winter, which is very harsh. Or to train virtually uh, from Calgary, multiple women, particularly through bridging programs, very sophisticated bridging programs that we have developed over the last 15 years across Canada. We already received funding to train women outside of Calgary. And we have been advocating for years so challenges bring opportunities. Challenges are tough, but that's how we move up, we move further, and we learn so much. Thank you. Since it was very inspiring how we can learn from challenges. Drusella, the floor is yours. Yes, if I can build on that, and also I wanted to say that uh, we have uh, a school impact program for children to put children in school where a school is on uh, teach um, uh, parents and children about uh, the school system, but also teachers. So in that, uh, during COVID, we had some communication problems, but because of the good relationship we have with them, uh, our school is on really here to advocate for our children uh, because they are people who had options to go in person or non-person. And uh, most of our children were uh, staying home because of the language. Uh, they were going to school instead of learning from home because of the language capabilities. And I wanted to say that uh, I saw uh, during COVID flexibility on many angles, even uh, from our federal government, because now uh, we have, uh, they give us money to do um, capacity for capacity building and community outreach. And then we use those funding to recruit contractors to go into the community to see faith-based or faith-inspired organization and other like attorneys and other community partners who would like to partner with us. And I want to say that also uh, we, with this Afghan evacuees and terrorists program, it's amazing how we see people who want to help. So we do, did develop a spreadsheet for all those pledges. People want to give houses and donations and things like that. So we have to take advantage of this momentum because if we have the tools to educate and to articulate the needs we have uh, for our clients, for sure, uh, we'll get more help. And also, uh, I, I, I do not know about you, uh, how your fundraising works, but we have to tell people this is what the government uh, uh, gives for basic needs, but we need private donations and people are open. I didn't know that I can bring the banks on and other private uh, foundation on board. And they did, and, and during COVID never stopped. So I think uh, uh, if we have a clear plan and also think about the people who are taking care of those clients, because sometimes we talk about clients, 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 and then the staff become uh, at the second level. I think if we fundraise both to support either clients and the staff, it can be uh, very good because um, the ratio about clients with special needs who need really intensive case management, 
we can ease the work of the case managers if we have extra private donations. So I think we should have a good plan also of fundraising on the top of what the federal government or other governments are providing for the services. Yes, absolutely. I think funding and of course resources is always crucial to be able to provide this quality and breadth and depth of services that your organizations do. Uh, Kava, would you, were you trying to jump into the conversation? Yes, there you go. This is uh, the floor is yours. Yes, I would. Um, I would bring you another example from uh, from Berlin. I mean, uh, in Berlin, we have uh, we have a certain certain amount of 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 of, um, of a budget for integration programs, uh, which is uh, quite remarkable. Uh, again, compared to other federal states in, in Germany. Uh, nevertheless, uh, if if we're talking about um, look, we have certain uh, um, certain programs which is particularly for women, as as I mentioned before. Then of course it's not it's not uh, it's not uh, it cannot be funded through through this budget. Then we have to go to the Ministry for Family and Women's Affairs, and so on. And they don't have a budget in this regard. So they have all sorts of budgets, but they don't have a budget for a, a refugee or newcomer program. So, um, and the same goes if we're, if we're talking about minors. So. Uh, Within the framework of integration, I have the feeling uh, it's it's just it's just uh, a small budget. Now now again now as you can imagine, <laughs> I'm I'm correcting myself. Now it's a small budget. Now the small budget has to cover everything uh, uh, concerning integration and migrants and refugees. So what what I would what what I, what I would uh, what I would prefer is that this whole notion and the whole. Uh, uh, all of these challenges will, will be taken more 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 seriously and will be be, be being approached more holistically as uh, again I have to I have to emphasize what Beba was saying that it, it has to it has to be done on a holistic level so you cannot say look language courses and I don't know um, labor market integration it's it's uh, it's it's up to the Senate of Labor and Integration and everything else is, we will, we will, we will handle this. So this has to be taken more seriously. And I mean, look, uh, when we're talking about the, 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 uh, uh, the examples from the US and, 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 and Canada, maybe these countries have more experience with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, uh, um, with, um, with migration and so forth and so, so on and so forth, or in a different way. But uh, particularly in, in Germany, I would I would expect Germany to 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 have a different policy now. You know, when I arrived in Germany, it was forty, uh, it was thirty years ago. I was ten years old, and 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 back then we were speaking the same language with all oh, the whole migrants and the whole refugees, and this is the end of the Cold War, and everybody is coming to Europe, particularly to Germany. So uh, it, it shouldn't be something new. What what we have been experiencing in two thousand fifteen and sixteen. So. But uh, but I have the feeling that um, again we're always reacting and we're not we're not necessarily uh, preventing or we're not necessarily um, designing certain certain structures and programs in order to to be prepared for the need for, for the next challenges. It's always reacting. But I'm I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not I'm neither blaming the the um, the administration part and, and and the Berlin government nor the government itself because because politics is working as such as, as has always been working on 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 a reacting basis and not necessarily on a preventing basis. But speaking right now, I have the feeling that um, as uh, as as Drochella was was mentioning. 
Uh, now is the time actually, and we have a chance in order to to point the finger at the at the importance and the the um, um, how 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 important it is to 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 welcome refugees, how important it is to to uh, to uh, to design programs and to take care of these people uh, with regards to the evacuations from Afghanistan. But I'm still waiting. I mean, in Germany we had the elections uh, a couple of days ago. I'm still waiting what the outcomes will be and how the new formed government will react and how they will actually uh, start uh, start the dialogues with, with us, with civil society, because uh, without us, uh, I think we will still have these uh, these conferences and we'll still be criticizing a lot of the policy. So I hope that next time uh, I will even have, maybe me or someone else, will even have more positive things to report from Berlin and from Germany. Excellent, that's a wonderful point. Um... I would also at this stage, of course, uh, the Q&A has opened up already. So uh, definitely don't hesitate to share your questions either in the Q&A box on Hufa or also in Zoom. Uh, we have four wonderful speakers with us that have so much experience and knowledge that they can share. Uh, so definitely do not hesitate uh, to share your questions. So we will address them. Um, and uh, I will, oh, for sure, yes. So may, I do not know if people will be on the, uh, on the Zoom tomorrow, but I wanted to share as a member of the Refugee Congress, what we do uh, is a national led by refugees and formed by refugees and asylum seekers advocacy national organization in the US. And uh, what we did is uh, uh, normally uh, before another government comes on power, uh, they do assessment of the refugee resettlement program. And the researchers, other institutions, and with Refugee Congress, we participated. We did check what works, what doesn't work, and we did recommendations. And uh, we did present those recommendations to the federal government. So we did meet with the Office of the Population, uh, Refugees and Migration, and Office of the Refugee Resettlement. And I tell you the truth, our voices have been heard. Uh, and, and, and we saw the government giving funding for housing. We did see the government giving funding for capacity building. And now the Refugee Congress with the Refugee Council USA and the Ethiopian uh, Community Council for Development, we are working together to define what integration services are. I think having those voice, refugees' voices and people who live the experience like you, Mr. Kava. So it, it, it's good to have those ideas and, and, and present them because sometimes you, you are heard 50% next year, you will be heard 70% and the other way here, it can, it can change. So we are hopeful that this uh, work we are doing as a Refugee Congress in partnership with other organization will lead really to change. And I think people, as we said, are willing to listen, they are willing to partner and uh, we are hoping for the best. I just wanted to share that because I do not know, maybe tomorrow people will not be there, but uh, refugees' voices are non-negotiable now. Excellent, I think that's a really good point, just non-negotiable, <laughs> perfect. Um, so uh, I would, we still have another question or some issues I would like to pick up on that we kind of, what I heard from different of the speakers earlier on. So I heard from Beba that there was a collaboration with the Calgary police on gender-based violence. I heard so from Kava that there was more collaboration uh, with the government in Germany. Um, so I would like to hear from all four of you, also from Lama, if to talk about 
did COVID or the pandemic help increase partnerships with government? Were you more consulted, more funding, more collaboration? Uh, and do you think this will be lasting and sustainable, these collaborations? And what can we do to make those sustainable and lasting beyond the pandemic? Especially because I think that these collaborations are especially uh, important when we talk about more vulnerable groups of migrants and migrant women. Yes, I totally agree with you. So the things is, uh, yes, I totally agree that um, there is like more interest with regard to uh, uh, address the main challenge regard to um, integrating the migrant and refugees uh, into a host uh, community uh, by like really supporting different kind of a project in different area. But here I would like maybe um, to distinguish maybe two kind of uh, as also like uh, Kava mentioned that uh, so there is like um, I believe uh, different between integration when we talk about integration and social inclusion. So each one of them, it's like completely uh, like need a different uh, kind of support. Uh, regard, regard to your question, yes, we recognize that um, somehow we try to really uh, become uh, more active to develop partnership, but we face also kind of difficulty to have a new cooperation because at the beginning of COVID, we didn't thought that it will take like long time to, uh, to, to until find a solution or back to our normal life. So we thought it's just like temporary uh, situation. But then after a, a year that we discover maybe the things will be like more long. So we need to, uh, to pack to work, to be more active again, and uh, just like uh, stop freezing the kind of activity or cooperation. And at that time, also all the organizations they pack and try to, um, I mean, back to work and try to really uh, find the kind of solutions to, to refresh their own uh, communication strategy to build a partnership or effective partnership to support each other during COVID-19 in different way. We are still in that, I think, period too, but we are now more close to, to, uh, to implement a new project, I believe. Um, it's a, another challenge, in fact, that we face it as an organization. Regard to the funding that you mentioned that normally as um, one organization, uh, we gain two-time support from European Student Union, as we are uh, women who like uh, led this initiative and we are a master's student, so uh, we was we was able to apply for that fund. And now we just like based on our um, like supporter or individual donations that we, we have it. Currently, we don't have any support, but we're still continuing to uh, do this kind of, in fact, supporting for other women because we really passion our work. And this is, it's a kind of responsibility for us to, uh, to help others. Thank you so much, Lama, for that contribution. Of course, I would still love to hear from the other panelists, but however, I see that the time is already over for our session because there's just so much to discuss and so much to learn from each other. But luckily, we have a wonderful networking session that will be starting now. So I would encourage all of you to join that. And I think besides our wonderful panelists, there's also all the great participants, many representing different organizations or experts in the field. Uh, so I think it's a really wonderful opportunity to learn from each other, share best practices, uh, 
and uh, maybe develop new collaborations. Uh, so also I would like to encourage everyone to check out the organizations of our panelists and their bios that are all available on HUFA and reach out to them in case they're interested. And uh, I want to thank all of you for your wonderful contributions and your questions. And uh, I wish all of you a wonderful rest of your conference. <laughs>